Section 0 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Melitzia. The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief Daniel Gregory Mason. General Introduction. So many and varied are the paths of musical enjoyment and profit opened out in the following pages. So different and sometimes so conflicting are the types of art represented there, that the timid or inexperienced reader may well pause at the threshold, afraid of wholly losing his way in such a labyrinth. He may hesitate to trust himself in so unfamiliar a landscape without first seeing some sort of small-scale plan of the ground, which, omitting the confusing details, shows in bold relief only the larger and essential divisions, the lay of the land. Such a plan it is the object of this introduction to furnish. Of the two most general types of reader, the professional musician and the amateur or lover of music, the first is least in need of such assistance. His keen interest in this specialty will naturally determine the order of his reading, he will look first for all he can find about that, and later work out from that centre in various directions. And meanwhile, the plan peculiar to this work of assembling all information on a given subject contained in any of the volumes under a name or subject word in the index volume will make this process as systematic and economical of time as it is fascinating to intellectual curiosity. Thus the index volume will serve as a sort of central rotunda, so to speak, making each room in this house of information accessible from every other, and it will matter little at what point we enter. The singer may go in by volume 5, the pianist by volume 7, the organist by volume 6. All will eventually penetrate the entire edifice. It is then the music lover unfamiliar with all musical technique, and quite unspecialised in his interest, who most needs the help that these preliminary suggestions may offer. The kind of help he will want will depend, of course, on what it is he chiefly wishes to gain by his reading. Now we shall probably not go far wrong in saying that such a reader will desire, first, that general knowledge of the most important schools and the greatest individuals of music history, which is not only a powerful aid to the enjoyment of music, but is nowadays coming to be considered an essential part of a liberal education. Secondly, he will wish to gain sufficient familiarity with music itself, and sufficient understanding of the instruments by which it is produced and the ways in which they influence its structure and style, to afford him the basis for sound discrimination between good, bad, and indifferent music, to develop in short his taste. In the third place, he will justly consider that however abstruse and involved the theory of music may be, its fundamental principles are nevertheless accessible to the layman, and that familiarity with such principles, especially those of musical structure, affording as it will an insight into the way music is put together, is an invaluable aid to that sympathetic understanding of it, which comes only to the alert and attentive listener. In a word, the music lover will demand of his reading that it instruct him historically, that it refine his taste by developing his sense of style, and that it intensify his enjoyment by showing him how to listen. Glancing now at the table of contents, we shall see that the art of music naturally divides itself into three portions, each especially suited 
to subserve one of these three needs of the reader. The first four volumes, historical and character, are primarily instructive. Volumes 5 to 9, inclusive, deal with the practical side of the art, what is sometimes called applied music. And in describing the chief media by which it is produced, such as the voice, the organ, the piano, the string quartet, the orchestra, provide general notions of what is appropriate to each. The short essays on harmony and on form in volume 12, and many passages of explanation of similar matters scattered through all the volumes, will acquaint the student with the fundamental principles of musical theory and the standard types of musical structure, thus affording him valuable aid to appreciative listening. The three portions of the work, historical, practical, and theoretical, are finally correlated and unified by volumes 11 and 12, the dictionary and index, and illustrated by the musical examples in volumes 13 and 14. Let us examine a little more closely the ground covered by each of these three general sections, one after another, not yet in detail, that will come only with the actual reading but with the idea, rather, of getting a bird's-eye view of the whole field in its salient masses and divisions. The history of music is like that of other arts, in being divided into schools or epochs. These are, of course, to a certain extent arbitrary and artificial, marked off by critics for convenience of classification, and a composer may belong to two or more schools, as Beethoven, for example, is both classical and romantic without being any more aware of it than we are when our train crosses the line, say from New York State into Massachusetts. But they are also in part natural and real, because any fruitful idea in art, such as the impressionistic idea of light in painting, for instance, is so much greater than any one man's capacity to grasp it, that a whole generation or more of artists is needed to develop its possibilities. Such a group of artists forms what we call a school, or period beginning usually with pioneers whose work is crude but novel, continuing with countless workers, most of whom are, after a short time, completely forgotten, and culminating with one or two greatly endowed masters who gather up all the best achievements of the school in their own work and stands for posterity as its figureheads, or in some cases engulf it entirely in their colossal shadows. Pioneers, journeymen, geniuses, that is the list of characters in the drama we call an artistic school. If we try to outline in the roughest way the half-dozen or so most important schools we can find in the entire history of music, we shall get something like the following. After the long groping among the rudiments that went on through Greek and early Christian times, there emerged during the Middle Ages a type of ecclesiastical music, which after a development of several centuries, culminated in the work of Orlando de Lasso, 1520-1594, Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina, 1524-1594, and others. This music is as primitive, archaic, and severe to our ears as the early Flemish religious pictures are to our eyes. It can be described chiefly in negatives. It did not employ instruments, but only voices in the chorus. It had no regular time measure, but wandered on with as little definiteness of rhythm as the Latin prose to which it was set. It employed no grating, harsh combinations of tones, dissonances, such as make our music so stirring to the emotions, partly because they are difficult for voices, 
partly because the science of harmony was in its infancy, partly because the kind of expression it aimed at was that of religious peace. Each group of voices had its own melody to carry, and as there were sometimes as many as sixteen groups, an extraordinarily complex web of voices or parts was developed, to which is due the name of polyphonic, many-voiced, applied to this school. Unsuited as it is to the restless temper of the modern man, it often attained within its own limits an exquisite beauty. With the application of this general type of art, the polyphonic, to instruments, especially the organ, new developments supervened. Dissonances were perfectly easy and most effective on the organ, that would have been impossible for voices. Definite metre and rhythm were gradually introduced. Above all, the many melodies of the older style to some extent gave way to the massive detached chords more suitable to the organ, because the player could grasp them by handfuls instead of having to make his fingers play hide-and-seek among the keys, and thus was born another great type of style, the homophonic, one main melody accompanied by chords rather than by other melodies. At the same time, the intellectual interest was vastly increased by the use of more and more definite and recognisable bits of melody, happily called the subjects, or themes, of the composition, which could be developed and marshalled just as a writer develops and marshals his thoughts. The fugue is the arch-type of this kind of composition, with its style partly polyphonic and partly homophonic, its deep thoughtfulness, its ingenuity, and its surprising variety and depth of emotional expression. Its supreme master was Johann Sebastian Bach, 1685-1750. Despite the mixture of styles in the fugue, however, the preponderant element was still the basket-like texture of winding melodies, suitable especially to voices. Hence, it was only in the suite, a type which developed at the same time, and out of which also Bach was one of the supreme masters, that the homophonic style suitable to instruments was freely worked out. Instruments mark the rhythm much more strongly than voices, so that all sorts of dance movements are particularly appropriate for them. When the rhythm is so marked, comparatively short phrases of tune stand out sharply and balance each other like the verses in a couplet of poetry. Composers soon found out how further to group these phrases in definite parts or sections, so contrasted that the whole of the short piece or movement presented a perfectly clear, sharp impression, had a definite beginning, middle, and end, a clear scheme of form. This clearness of impression was enhanced by making only one line of melody, the tune, or air, as we say, prominent, either subordinating all the others or doing away with them entirely, in favour of an accompaniment of detached chords such as we find in a modern waltz or march. The suite, then, as it is found in its golden age, the 18th century, is a series of short dance tunes of strongly marked rhythm, precise in phraseology and concise in form in the homophonic style. Among its masters may be mentioned, besides the German Bach, Couperin and Rameau in France, Corelli violin, and Scarlatti, harpsichord in Italy, and Handel in England. Closely allied with the suite, indeed an offshoot from it, is the sonata, originally any piece for instruments, from sonare, to sound or play, as distinguished from a cantata for voices. 
from cantare, to sing. The old sonatas are essentially suites, but the generation after Bach's, of which one of his own sons, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, was a guiding spirit, hit upon one of those apparently simple but immensely fruitful ideas out of which whole schools are made. It was this. Instead of coming to a stop as soon as you have outlined a single musical idea or theme, and then merely repeating or slightly elaborating it, as was done in all the movements of the typical suite, why not embrace in the span of your thought two contrasting ideas, so characterized and arranged that each should serve as the effective foil of the other? Once this notion of making a piece of music out of two contrasting themes was tried out in practice, it proved to have endless potentialities. In the two hundred years that have elapsed since C.P.E. Bach's birth in 1714, its possibilities have not been exhausted. It has shown an elasticity which has enabled it to serve equally for the embodiment of such different ideas as those of Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, Tchaikovsky, Brahms. It has been applied to all branches of instrumental music, extending its sway quickly from the sonata, specifically so-called, for one, two, or three instruments, to the quartet, quintet, etc., for a group, to the concerto, for a soloist with orchestral accompaniment, and to the overture and the symphony for full orchestra. The purest examples of the application of this scheme to orchestral music are to be found in the first movements of the symphonies of Joseph Haydn, 1732-1809, to of W.A. Mozart, 1756-1791, and above all of Ludwig van Beethoven, 1770-1821, the genius in whom the classical symphony culminated. The method adopted in such movements, of which the opening allegro of Beethoven's Eroica symphony may stand as an unsurpassable model, was first to present two strongly individual and contrasting musical ideas, themes. The first usually more vigorous in character, the second more tender and appealing, Second, to let these thoughts germinate, or develop in such a way as to bring clearly forth what was at first latent in them. And finally, to draw together the threads and complete the musical action by a restatement of the root ideas in something like their original form. The variety, the power, the subtlety, the unfailing instinct for beauty with which Beethoven worked out the almost limitless possibilities of such a scheme can hardly be realized even dimly, save by a loving study of his masterpieces, phrase by phrase, almost note by note. His symphonies are like Greek statues of the great period in their infinite variety, their perfect unity. It may seriously be doubted whether music can ever a second time attain the harmony of all its elements that it found in this supreme master, that which one of his critics has happily termed the perfect balance of expression and design. Certain it is that immediately after him, in large measure as a result of his own example, it took a pronounced turn toward picturesqueness, toward highly personal expression, toward all that is conveniently summed up in the vague word romanticism. Just what romanticism means, it is easier to suggest by examples than to define in general terms. Franz Schubert, 1797 to 1828, 
emphasizing the lyric element in orchestral music so that his symphonies have almost the personal expressiveness of songs is romantic. Robert Schumann, 1810-1856, with his vivid short piano pieces bearing such suggestive titles as Soaring, Whims, In the Night, Why, and with his musical portraits of friends, his quotations from his own works, and other ingenious devices for stimulating our imaginations, literary and pictorial, as well as musical, is romantic. Felix Mendelssohn, 1809-1847, is romantic with his orchestral canvases of the Hebrides Islands, bathed in sunshine and clamoured over by seabirds, and of the delicate dances of Shakespeare's fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. And romantic is Frederick Chopin, 1809-1849, with his nocturnes and preludes. The composers of the Romantic period, in fact, embodied in the types of design they inherited from Beethoven, but practised as a rule with far less mastery than he, a sort of poetic suggestion of all kinds of things outside of music. Their art is essentially an art of suggestion, and while its purely musical beauty is often great, they wish us not to rest content with the music for itself, but to regard it as a symbol of something beyond. Once composers had begun to label, so to speak, the musical expressiveness, which the classicists preferred to leave free to act upon each hearer according to his temperament and associations, certain, especially literary minds among them, notably Hector Berlioz, 1803-1869, and Franz Liszt, 1811-1886, naturally felt impelled to carry the process a step further, to amplify and edit the label into complete directions for using. Such directions for using are called programmes, and the school which affects them is named programmistic, or by analogy with a similar school in literature, realistic. Your typical programmist, such as Berlioz, is not satisfied with the Romanticist's mere suggestion of a subject, he demands in advance a complete bill of fare of his musical feast. When Beethoven, a classicist, deals with human emotion, love, for instance, as in the Fifth Symphony, he aims merely to stimulate in us the most general feeling, and let each of us interpret for himself. When a romanticist, like Tchaikovsky, writes almost equally beautiful love music, he gives a fillip to our imagination by naming it an overture to Romeo and Juliet. But when Berlioz conceives his symphonie fantastique, he must have his lover killed on the guillotine. He must even hear the knife fall. Such a theory of musical aesthetics is evidently highly dangerous, since it tends to bind shackles on the free movement of the music, and also to distract the hearer's attention from the music to something far less vital. Nevertheless, in the hands of Richard Strauss, in our own day, born 1864, who seems to be the genius in which this school is to culminate, it has led to remarkable results. We have now reviewed, in highly summary fashion, some of the chief schools, with their most representative masters, that may be noted in a bird's-eye view of the history of instrumental music. As for the other great branch of the art, music associated with literature, and especially its most important manifestation, the opera, Classification according to artistic principles is both more difficult and less necessary, since the opera can very well be studied by countries rather than by schools. 
the reader will at any rate find in his study of opera that one or two clear conceptions of the national or racial character of the three peoples who have done the most important work in the operatic field the italians the french and the germans will help him more than aesthetic standards difficult to apply to an aesthetic hybrid which is neither drama nor music thus the italian sensuousness has been both the blessing and the curse of opera in italy the blessing by keeping it simple and tuneful as in so much of rossini seventeen ninety two to eighteen sixty eight bellini eighteen o two to eighteen thirty five donizetti seventeen ninety eight to eighteen forty eight the early verdi eighteen thirteen to nineteen o one and even such moderns as mascagni and leoncavallo the curse of opening the door to all sorts of absurdities on the dramatic side and to the abuse of the power of the singers in meaningless virtuosity again the keen dramatic sense of the french has helped to minimize such absurdities in works produced by their composers or at their national opera house under their national influence as for instance those of gluck seventeen fourteen to seventeen eighty seven cherubini seventeen sixty to eighteen forty two mayabir seventeen ninety one to eighteen sixty four and others finally the warmth of sentiment of the germans their unrivalled faculty for getting at the emotional essence of a situation and expressing it in music must be accorded a large part in the power of the romantic operas of the german karl maria von weber seventeen eighty six to eighteen twenty six and the music dramas of richard wagner eighteen thirteen to eighteen eighty three in revenge the teutonic deficiency of dramatic sense and tolerance of tedium are to some extent accountable for these long stagnations of the action in the wagnerian dramas which the most ardent admirers of wagner the musician no longer deny in all this historical study of the earlier volumes of the art of music the reader will be primarily in quest of information his interest will be that of the scientist in facts even here however he will soon find himself discriminating the good from the bad or from the less good setting up standards of comparison in a word mingling with his purely scientific interest in facts as artistic interest in values in all periods he will find the great man distinguished from the little by nobility depth and variety of thought and by purity of style in all ages he will discover hosts of mediocrities for one genius he will realize that there were as many routinists in the polyphonic school as many dry as dusts in the classic as many sentimentalists in the romantic as there are uninspired scene painters among the programmists he will remark what may be called the double paradox of art first that cheap decorativeness empty display of merely technical skill splurge of all sorts while often making music popular in its own day has always killed it early for posterity as for example in the case of the over-ornamented arias of italian opera or the equally over-ornamented piano pieces of thalberg and other early nineteenth-century pianists second that simplicity directness sincerity are always at first ignored or misunderstood and only gradually take the supreme place which belongs to them as we see in studying such otherwise dissimilar artists as gluck mozart beethoven schumann wagner brahms franck such observations open up the path to a true independent and unconventional estimate of artistic values to the development of real taste
It is especially in amplifying, clarifying and solidifying this taste that the second group of volumes, dealing with the media of musical production, will be useful to the unprofessional reader. A knowledge of the construction of instruments, and of the style appropriate to each, as determined by its peculiarities, and exemplified in its literature, is a great aid both to the appreciation of excellence and to the detection of shoddiness. A simple example will make this clear. Everyone who has watched a pianist play a waltz knows how appropriate and convenient for the piano is that kind of accompaniment which has been called the dum-dum-dum, where the left hand first sounds the bass and then strikes twice a chord completing the harmony and at the same time marking the rhythm. This is an excellent piano device because it does these three needful things in the simplest possible way. What shall we say, however, when laziness or incompetence Writing a waltz for orchestra borrows this piano device without change, as it does constantly in the popular music of the day. Evidently enough, what was well fitted to the piano is ridiculous for an orchestra, for here it gives the bass instruments a series of detached notes without coherence or interest, and condemns the unfortunate players who provide the middle parts to repeat an endless dum-dum-dum-dum, which outrages all musical instinct. Or again, we sometimes hear piano pieces in which the harmonies are arranged in solid chords, as in the hymn tune familiar in the Protestant church. Why the effect should be so singularly vapid, we do not know, until we think of the peculiarities of the instruments involved. Voices, especially in large groups, as in congregational singing, move slowly, sustain well, and show their quality best when disposed in broad masses hence the appropriateness to them of these deliberate chords. But the piano, on the contrary, sustains very poorly, achieves fullness of volume only by means of rapid utterance, and is, in short, at its very worst in the hymn-tune style. Piano tone requires to be split up into many facets, to be carved, so to speak. But vocal tone is like those substances, such as coloured marble, which show their texture best in the block. Recently, there has been much controversy as to the appropriateness of organ transcriptions of orchestral works. No doubt the organ can render the notes of a symphony quite as well as the poor, overworked piano, but a rudimentary knowledge of the mechanism of the organ will show us where lies its special capacity, in the sustaining and rolling up of great masses of tone, and not at all in that more intimate expressiveness, through swelling and fading, and through accent in which the violin is peerless. The organ is magnificent in a Bach fugue, unsatisfactory in a Beethoven symphony, ridiculous in a popular dance. Thus, on all sides, we see that style depends on the medium, and that a sensitive taste will no more detach a musical figure from its appropriate setting than it will transfer the costume of the logging camp to the drawing room, or vice versa. What makes all study of this kind particularly necessary to the would-be intelligent music lover of today is that our generation seems to be going through a period of unusual confusion in all matters of taste. Whether it be that our resources have accumulated faster than our powers of assimilation could develop, or that popular education, while increasing the amount of musical enjoyment, has lowered its quality, or that the ever-present commercialism has betrayed us, whatever be the causes, it is certain that almost all our standards have suffered from a false liberalism, that we have lost old lines and boundaries without getting anything to put in their place, 
and that much as we may boast of no longer starving our artistic instincts, as did our Puritan forefathers, we do not yet discriminatingly nourish them, but rather overeat ourselves sick. There is hardly any branch of music where this tendency to excess may not be discovered. The modern conception of the piano, for instance, as a rival of the orchestra in richness, variety and power of sound, has adulterated piano style in many respects. It has led directly to ungrateful writing for the piano by composers, to pounding and other exaggerations by players. There are few musicians nowadays who show the fine self-control that made Schumann and Chopin models of how the piano should be treated. The rare intuition of Debussy in this respect is one of the true justifications of a vogue not perhaps altogether free from fadism. In chamber music, notably the string quartet, where delicateness of sonority is even more vital to the style since it is the condition of the clearness of the individual voices and cannot be departed from without an immediate coarsening of the texture, there is the same tendency to imitate the orchestra. One hears many modern quartets in which all four instruments keep restlessly soaring away, often on two strings at once, as if they were taking part in a hurdle race or a debating society rather than in a work of art. Special effects like harmonics and the use of the mute, appropriate enough in solos and at long intervals, are grossly abused. In striving to be something beyond its frame, this most exquisite combination of four musical personalities loses all its intimateness, all its charm. Even orchestral music itself does not escape these perversions. There is a distinct cult at the present day, especially in France, for playing at concerts music originally written to accompany pantomimes or ballets, and even for composing pieces intended for concert, according to the processes suitable for such illustrative music. With highly spiced sonorous effects, schemes of structure based on dramatic action, and little or no purely musical interest. Indeed, all thoughtful observers must sometimes ask themselves if this universal tendency to force things out of their natural fields, to make them do not what they can do best, but what they are least expected to do, is not a symptom of a grave disorder of our aesthetic sense, a preference of novelty to beauty, a debased fondness for the queer an invasion of art by that low curiosity which draws a street crowd around anyone who will stand on his head or wear his clothes wrong side before. The reader genuinely fond of music will be glad to combat this tendency to the best of his power, and to that end will inform himself of those peculiarities of instruments by which appropriateness of style is so largely determined. What the average reader can get from his study of the theoretical portions of the art of music will depend largely on his instinctive sense of the larger bearing of technical facts. Studied with pedantic insistence of detail, harmony is a dry subject, Studied with an imagination eager for the light it throws on general aesthetic questions, it proves unexpectedly illuminating. Harmony describes the material available to the musician. It is, we might say, the dictionary from which each composer chooses the words he needs to express his thought. And to study it is therefore for the lover of music much what it is for the lover of literature to study the vocabularies of his favourite authors the derivations of the words, their ancient associations, the flavours which cling about them. Just as Sir Thomas Brown has his special words, noble-sounding, many-syllabled, and his special forms of sentence that roll grandly off the tongue, 
and as Keats, finds in the same English a completely different instrument, capable of romantic utterance and full of elusive suggestion. So the harmony of Bach is not the harmony of Schumann, although it is made out of the same notes and even many of the same chords. Indeed, the very same chord is not the same in effect, in style, when used in the context of two composers, or even one composer in two different moods. A chord is a chameleon that takes the colour of its surroundings. How full of sadness, of infinite resignation, is the first B-flat chord in the adagio of the Ninth Symphony. How the very same B-flat chord pulsates with energy in the allegro of the fourth. The study of the action and reaction of harmony and style is a fascinating one in spite of its difficulty, one on which books might be written as many have been on the choice of words in literature. Easier, however, and much more directly helpful to appreciation is the study of the chief principles of musical form or structure as they affect not the composer but the listener. As one going into a foreign country provides himself with some guidance as to the main things he is going to see there, so the music lover to whom symphonic music remains to some degree a foreign region likes to find out before he hears it what he is to listen for. That knowledge in detail will be found in the essay on musical form in volume 12. Here it is our business, as before, avoiding detail to get such a bird's eye view as may be possible of the most general facts of musical form. Especially agreeable and useful would it be if we could show that in music as elsewhere, form and formalism are two essentially different things, and that while formalism is the conventionalising and stiffening that indicate lowered vitality or incipient death in a work of art. Form is the necessary shape it takes because it is alive. The formless is not yet alive. The formal is dying or dead. Only the formed truly lives. Therefore, musical form is quite simple and natural, like the branching of trees or the crystallising of salts, and the study of it is based on observation and common sense and strives to determine how sounds have to be ordered to become intelligible. Essentially, there are but three processes concerned in musical construction. The announcement or exposition of the themes, their elaboration or development, and their recapitulation. These processes are the natural outcome of quite simple psychological facts, and are duplicated in literature and other arts. The announcement of a theme is the preliminary statement, made as simple and as brief as possible, of the thought with which the composer proposes to occupy himself. For the listener, it is the presentation of a bit of melody, of a particular rhythmic profile which he remembers by this profile. This characteristic combination of long and short, accented and unaccented notes, just as he remembers a person by the shape of his face. Careful attention to the main themes of a composition is of vital importance to appreciation, since the themes are the actors of the musical drama, and all the action is really only the working out of the latent characteristics. This is what we mean by development. In no music worthy of the name is development an artificial, intellectual process. It is simply the germination of the theme seeds. As it results, however, in constantly increasing complexity, it would quickly confuse the listener were it not judiciously combined with simple repetitions of the original ideas. 
serving both to mark the completion of one cycle or development, and sometimes to initiate a new one. The recapitulations ensure the unity of the impression as a whole made by the work of art. The developments give it the richness and variety inseparable from all life. The many special musical forms of which the student will read are merely so many clearly defined combinations of these three processes. Thus, in the minuet, for example, a comparatively primitive form, there is one theme, expounded, developed, and recapitulated. And in the second part, called trio, a second theme, treated exactly the same way. In the song form, so-called used for slow movements of sonatas and symphonies, there is usually an exposition of a theme, a slight development, and an ornamented or otherwise varied repetition. Then, without any complete stop, a contrasting theme, treated much the same way. Finally, a return of the main theme, either treated as at first or somewhat more briefly. Sometimes there is a short coda, concluding section, with further slight development of one or both themes. The sonata form, as we have already seen, is distinguished from both these more rudimentary types by having two themes of almost equal importance, sometimes three. These contrast with each other in expression, rhythm, and what is called key. Their development is extended and occupies the entire middle part of the piece. They are regularly recapitulated much as the first, but now both in the same key, and may be followed by a coda, which, with Beethoven, assumes sometimes almost the importance of a second development. In the rondo, there is a constant alternation between a main theme and other secondary themes or sections of development. Thus, in all the special forms, we find but different applications of the three fundamental processes of exposition, development, and recapitulation. Much as all plants go through the necessary cycle of seeding, growth, and blossoming, the more the music of the great symphonic masters is studied, the more marvellous will the reader find the mingling of ingenuity and simplicity with which they know how to marshal their thoughts. Such study makes listening no longer a passive or even wearisome process, but the most fascinating reliving of a spiritual life as many-sided, as infinitely various, as filled with beauty as that of nature herself. Daniel Gregory Mason June 1914. End of section 0 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, read by Jake Militia.